1: It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Insight Hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Insight Hour
0: Tonight I'd like to talk about two of the most predominant and far reaching aspects of our experience. Aspects that strongly condition both our suffering and our well-being, our happiness. (laughs) And that play out both in our minds in practice and in our lives in the world. (laughs) And that these are the realms of thought and emotion. So in order to have a fuller understanding of how we can work skillfully with these two very predominant aspects of our lives, it's helpful to consider the framework of what in some traditions are called the two truths. That is the level of relative truth, relative reality, and the level of more ultimate reality. So we can understand the other words for these two truths, we could think of it in terms of the level of karma and the level of emptiness or the level of content and the level of process and we can look at both thoughts and emotions on each of these two levels and it's important to understand both because they balance each other Now it's very easy to become attached to one or the other. We can become attached to the relative level of our lives, the relative level of understanding, where we become really enmeshed in our personal stories. A more subtle danger for people on the spiritual path (coughs) happens when we get attached to some notion or concept of emptiness you know, And in that case, people think, oh, everything's empty, nothing matters. So the maturation of our spiritual practice is when we can bring these two together. And the unification of the relative and more ultimate levels was expressed uh, somewhat of a Zen witticism by the Zen master, uh, Sung San when he said, There's no right and no wrong, the ultimate level. But right is right and wrong is wrong, the relative level. There's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. And so we need to unify in our own understanding how these two perspectives uh, integrate. The importance of working with thoughts and emotions is highlighted in many ways, many times in the teachings. One Tibetan text describes the untrained mind as tumbling like a waterfall. Any waterfalls today? You know, we were just caught up in a stream of thoughts. And in a verse from the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, the active mind is difficult to tame, flighty and wandering where it wills. Taming it is essential, leading to the joy of well-being. I think it's helpful to uh, hear this because very often We might think oh we're the only ones with the wandering mind you know or flighty mind but the buddha was addressing this you know 2600 years ago the nature of our minds as human beings is the same over all these years we all know how easy it is for the mind to hop on trains of thought association you know we hop on these trains We don't know where the train is going. We don't even know that we've hopped on. You know, we're just on it. And then some time later, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes or half an hour later, it's like we hop off the train, aware that we've been thinking, sometimes in a very different mental environment. You know, our thoughts may have created a whole different inner space. So the question is, how then can we work with thoughts, this very predominant pervasive aspects of our minds, learning to understand and to creatively shape the thought process. And again, the Buddha spoke to this from a verse in the Dhammapada. He said, just as an arrow maker shapes an arrow So the wise develop the mind, so the wise develop the mind, so excitable, uncertain, and difficult to control. I love these verses because it's as if the Buddha's talking directly to us. Develop the mind, so excitable, so uncertain, so difficult to control. But the wise practice, shaping the mind, training the mind, So how do we do this? With quickly passing thoughts, thoughts that (coughs) just arise in the mind and pass quickly, all we have to do is to simply be aware as they pass through the mind. And we can practice and refine this kind of mindfulness of thought, and this would be a good practice to undertake, As these quickly passing thoughts pass through the mind, notice when in that process you become aware that you're thinking. So is it after the thought is already finished? You know, and we remember, oh yeah, thought just passed. Is it in the middle of the thought or do you become aware of it just as it's arising? And so it's just to notice, not to judge it, not to evaluate it, but having in mind this as a practice will sharpen your attentiveness to thought as an object. Just noting when it is in the process that you become aware. A critical point here is not to add to this awareness a judgment about it an aversion or a resistance to the fact that the thoughts are happening. It would be so easy to notice that you become aware of a thought after it's already over and have the first comment be, oh, missed it again. That's unnecessary. And if that thought arises, notice when you pick that one up in the beginning, middle, or after it's over. It's just to see. You know, we're using this as an exercise to clarify and refine our awareness of thought as an object. So Suzuki Roshi, you know, the wonderful Zen master who founded San Francisco Zen Center, in his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which was an early classic, you know, when it came out, it has a wonderful line there. He says, don't be bothered by your thoughts. Simply let them come and go. So that's a good frame for uh, suggesting a wise attitude. So that's with quickly passing thoughts. But when there are longer trains of thought, you know, when we, when we really have hopped on a train of association, or when there are persistent and repeated patterns of thought, you know, the same stories, the same kinds of thought happening again and again, then it might be helpful to use some different strategies. Because in those thoughts, we're getting seduced, we're getting carried away. So we need, we need a few more tools in the toolbox so in these situations, it's helpful to understand the broader meaning of mindfulness. You know, and as you know, mindfulness is the English translation of the Pali word sati. And in Pali, the word, the word sati really covers quite a wide range, you know, of applications and meanings. So the root of the word is to remember. So remembering here means and one of the one of the ways mindfulness works it's we remember or we call to mind what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. So that's an aspect of mindfulness. It's also to remember the present moment, so these are two different aspects of it: calling to mind what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, and remembering what's arising in the present moment. This is the app. This is the opposite of being absent-minded. You know, when we're not in the present moment, we don't know what's happening, or It's also different than a common tendency in the mind to be leaning forward into the process, leaning forward into the next moment, into the next experience, in anticipation of the next arising. And this is something that often goes unnoticed in the way we're practicing. So I would suggest and recommend that as you're being mindful, as you're remembering the present moment, so you might actually be there, it's not forgetful, but is there this energetic leaning into the following moment? James Joyce wrote of one of his characters, mr duffy lived a short distance from his body we're all mr duffy very often you know it's like our mind is often a bit ahead of itself and so mindfulness and this remembering of the present moment means paying attention to that and can we settle back completely connecting with just what's arising in this moment so there's not that toppling, there's not that leaning. I came across a phrase, or maybe somebody mentioned it to me, a phrase used in rock climbing, which when they said it, it just it captured this aspect of mindfulness. Evidently, a rock climbing phrase is stay over your feet. And I'm not a rock climber, but That's this sense of not toppling forward, not being ahead of ourselves, not being Mr. Duffy. Stay over your feet, stay over the moment, be right here. In remembering the present moment with regard to thoughts, that is aware that the thought is arising the challenge is as we all know that thoughts are extremely slippery they don't have the same initial impact you know in the moment of that first contact as a sound does or as a sensation does you know when sounds arise or sensations arise there's a level of impact in that contact and so It calls our attention. But thoughts, it's such a strange phenomena. They just slip right in, you know, and we don't even know very often they've slipped in. (coughs) And before we realize it, because they're so slippery, because they're so subtle in their impact, before we know it, we're often carried off on this whole long stream of papancha, of proliferating thoughts. Being aware of this can be a completely fascinating arena of inquiry. I just want to share one experience I had on a self retreat that opened up a whole new appreciation of the kind of inquiry we can make and the power of a deepening understanding of the thought process. So I had the experience just in waking up in the morning, you know how sometimes you wake up and then if you don't get up right away, you might slip back into a dream state for a minute or two, and then maybe, or sometimes longer. <laughs> and then again wake up and, you know, then we're really awake. Because I think that's a common experience of the mind just slipping back into that dreamlike quality. So I was doing walking meditation. And this was when I was not doing the very slow walking, although the same, the same process would be happening. I was doing... Um, It's a slightly more normal pace. And I began to notice these very quick and subtle and light thoughts passing through the mind. But I didn't notice them at first till after they were over. And I saw that in those moments, the mind was... Caught up in that very light thought. It was not a big, heavy drama. It was just a passing light thought. It was exactly the same as going back into the dream state after being awake. And then I noticed that a lot of these thoughts, in one way or another, were self referential. You know, and maybe a plan, you know, or memory, or a like, or a dislike. There's some, some kind of self-reference often in these thoughts. And I realized that in a very fundamental way, we are dreaming ourselves into existence. You know, we're just getting caught up in these thoughts like we get caught up in a dream state. These dream thoughts often revolve around some sense of self or I, And so we're just dreaming this notion that we're dreaming this experience of self into existence. Since then, I found it very interesting, not only in walking meditation, but just in moving about in life, to bring more attention to these very light-passing thoughts that, if unnoticed, are creating an entire inner environment, depending on what the thought is. Again, it may not be a heavy drama, it may be a very light sense. And yet we're in the dream, if we're not aware that they're there. So it becomes very interesting to watch this process in the course of a day, regardless of what you're doing. And regardless of the activity, you can be bringing a heightened quality of awareness to what's arising in the mind. And it's very, it's both fascinating to see how our thoughts, these very light thoughts are creating a world and the possibility of a whole different level of freedom when we're seeing that when we're not lost in that dream. So mindfulness in both these aspects, that is calling to mind what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, remembering that and remembering to be in the present moment. It also serves this these aspects of mindfulness also serve as being a protector of the mind. It guards this kind of mindfulness guards us from the power and the effect of being law and the suffering of unskillful thoughts and emotions, because without mindfulness of them, we're simply acting out the patterns of our conditioning, and we all are a mix. You know, we're all conditioned for a lot of wholesome kinds of thoughts and emotions, but also a lot of ones that are not so wholesome. So without mindfulness, we're just acting all this out. Right, in, in an unconscious way. Well, mindfulness acts as this protector of the mind. Ajahn Sumedho, used a phrase which I've repeated very often because it so captures this insight. He said, our practice, contrary to kind of a new age interpretation of it, is not about following your heart, it's about training the heart. And I think that's really important to understand because not everything in our hearts are so wholesome. You now some things are, but there's a lot that's not. So it's not just following our heart. We want to be training our heart. So 2 weeks ago, you know, I was speaking of the Buddha's discourse on two kinds of thoughts, right? Where he he separated out those thoughts that were unwholesome, those thoughts that were wholesome. So he began to discern the difference. This is still when he was a bodhisattva, before he was enlightened. So the question is, why is this discernment so essential? Why is it so vitally important? Because as the Buddha pointed out later in that very same discourse, he pointed out something which... uh, is just so important for us to hear and remember and reflect on when he said, whatever we frequently think about and ponder becomes the inclination of our minds. So this is a tremendously important statement, because so often we think that, you know, whatever is arising in the moment or just arise arising is gone. And it has no further impact but whatever we frequently think about or ponder upon that becomes the inclination of our mind because the repetition of certain thoughts and emotions are actually strengthening or deepening those neural pathways in the brain there's something actually happening from the repetition of these thoughts and emotions, and it becomes easier then to have that same pattern of thoughts and emotions arise again. So, we really want to pay careful attention to how we're inclining our mind. What are we inclining our minds towards? And the only way to do this is to strengthen or refine our mindfulness of what these thoughts are, what these these patterns of thought are. And to know, is this skillful? Is it unskillful? Because these thoughts then lead to habitual actions in our lives. You know, reading the texts, the teachings are so Fantastic. The Buddha was very smart. (laughs) So he then makes an interesting distinction. Okay, so he lays out, yeah, it's important to see where we're inclining our mind, what's skillful, what's unskillful. But then he goes on even further. And he makes an interesting distinction about how we apply mindfulness in cases where the thoughts and emotions. are unskillful, and when they're skillful. So the application of mindfulness and the way we practice it is different in each of these cases. So he says, when we're noticing unskillful patterns of thought, we need a very active and engaged quality of mind. We need to be very vigilant. We need to be very heedful. So that we don't stray into these unwholesome patterns. And he uses the example, you know, he came from an agrarian society, so he he uses a lot of uh, images and examples uh, from that time. He said just as a cowherd needs to be extra vigilant, you know, when he's guarding the cows when the crops are still in the field. So the cows don't wander into the crops and damage them. So he has to be, she has to be very vigilant uh, at that time. And so the Buddha described one way of applying you know, and practicing this vigilance when unwholesome thoughts arise, which is the simple reflection So this is a way of actually applying this instruction. With these kinds of thoughts, be extra vigilant, be extra heedful. So the mind doesn't stray into those pastures. So how do we do this? One way that he suggested is that when we're aware of an unskillful pattern, you know, a pattern rooted in desire or ill will or aversion or whatever it may be, the simple reflection that these kinds of thoughts, these patterns of thought lead to our own affliction, lead to the affliction of others, lead to the affliction of both. So we have to remember that you know, and not simply be somewhat lackadaisical in our attentiveness with these kinds of thoughts. We need to call up you know, this wisdom factor of the mind, these kinds of thoughts lead to affliction. And often just that reflection, just that remembering, reminding ourselves of that, is enough to let the thoughts go. We realize this is not serving either myself or others. So we can use this reflection it actually is a skillful means for helping us to disidentify with these patterns of thought we practice letting them go but sometimes the reflection is not enough you know if the pattern is very strong or very seductive in some way you know we're caught up in and then we say yeah this is for my own affliction the affliction of others but doesn't quite do it. So sometimes we need stronger measures. And this is where getting creative in your practice uh, can be beneficial. So there's one time where I was just getting seduced by thoughts of sense desire. Very pleasant, enjoyable. This is for my own affliction. (laughs) but (laughs) The seduction was too great. You know, so i wasn't heeding that voice, and this was a pattern that I saw many, many times. It was not a new, it was not something new that I had to explore and understand about myself. I had seen this ten thousand times already, and so at a certain point, kind of needed the sort of wisdom and not not just a not just a wise reflection and when I saw this pattern, you know come up. Enough. Enough. You know, we just cut it with our sort of wisdom. And it took that and that was effective. It's like I met the seductive energy with a strong enough energy of wisdom, you know, in the mind. The key here is how we're wielding that sort of wisdom. It's not with aversion, it's not with anger, it's with understanding. I've seen this a million times enough so be creative in all of these levels sometimes it's just recognizing this is unskillful sometimes it's a wise reflection sometimes it's engaging with a sword and in this way our practice gets very dynamic it's not rote you know we have to we have to use the tools that are appropriate to what's arising But with wholesome states of mind, the Buddhist suggests a whole different attitude. It takes a different form, so I want to read. He's using that same uh, image of the cowherd. So just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have already been brought inside the villages, a cowherd would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree or out in the open, since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too, there was need for me only to be mindful that those states were there. So I love that image of the cow herd kind of resting against a tree. And all I need to do is just be aware the cows are there because there's no danger of damaging the crops. So when the skillful thought patterns are there, or skillful mind states, you know, wholesome emotions, hypervigilance is not needed. We don't have to have that added quality of a kind of urgency. We can relax back and simply be aware, oh, wholesome state is present. So what do you see, there's a more relaxed attitude in the mind, which in that situation furthers the practice because too much vigilance at that time actually can be a cause of disturbing the mind. The mind is already in a wholesome space, so we don't need to add that kind of strong energetic response to it. So this is all, these are all the subtleties you know, of understanding first what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, being in the present moment with what's arising, and then you know, playing with understanding, okay, what's the right strategy here, in terms of being mindful. So in practicing this discernment of different kinds of thoughts and different ways of working with thought, it's also important to check your attitude about the fact that thoughts are happening because many people carry certain prejudice into the meditation with respect to thoughts aside he speaks a lot about this i just want to read a few things he says which is a very helpful corrective for many of our attitudes He said, when the mind is thinking or wandering, just be aware of it. Thinking is a natural activity of the mind. You are doing well if you are aware that the mind is thinking. When you feel disturbed by the thinking mind, remind yourself that you are not practicing to prevent thinking. Okay. Mark that sentence. (laughs) When you feel disturbed by the thinking mind, remind yourself that you are not practicing to prevent thinking, but rather to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. We can make and we can practice making thought the object of our mindfulness. It does not matter whether thinking stops or not. It is more important that you understand whether your thoughts are skillful or unskillful appropriate or inappropriate, necessary or unnecessary. I hope you're getting a sense of the richness of working with thought as a very predominant aspect of our experience. There's so much to learn with respect to this thought process. So, so far we've been speaking mostly of thought on the relative level, right? That is understanding the contents of them, understanding whether they're skillful or unskillful, watching our attitudes toward them. It's also possible to investigate thought on the more ultimate level. And here we become mindful, not particularly of the content, but of the nature of thought itself, right? the nature of thought as a phenomenon. And so the question that we can ask ourselves on this level, as we become aware that thinking is happening, and even if it's a, if it's a stream of thoughts, if we can be mindful that it's happening, we can hold the question in the mind, what is a thought? Not what the thought is saying, but what is it as a phenomenon? So this is a very interesting investigation. What's so amazing about our lives is how much power unnoticed thoughts have. They are like little dictators in our minds. All these unnoticed thoughts are arising, we're lost in them. Go here, they'll get, go there, do this, do that. Our whole lives, we're just acting out the dictates of these thoughts. But what's so amazing is that when we're mindful of the thought and are looking at the very nature of thought, we see that it is little more than nothing. It's like this little this little energy blip in the mind. There's nothing much there. I don't know how, how probably many of you at one time or another have seen The Wizard of Oz, you know, and the scene where the wizard is all blustery and powerful, the powerful wizard, and then the little dog, Toto pulls away the curtain. And it's just this little old guy you know, working some levers, which is projecting all this power. Well, mindfulness, Toto is the, is the tulku of mindfulness in this case. Yeah, it's just pulling away the curtain and say, there's nothing much there when we're really looking directly at the nature of thought. And the more often we see that, the less often we're seduced by their content. I just want to read something from one of the great (coughs) Tibetan Dzogchen masters, uh, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. He said, normally we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow, vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. The rainbow simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly as they have been doing through countless past lives. That's such a liberating teaching. When we put it into practice. When we really are investigating the nature of thoughts for ourselves, because we can hear all this and either agree or disagree or have whatever thoughts we have about it. But we have to be seeing this for ourselves. And it's tremendously liberating. So in some way, if you have this attitude about working with thoughts and understand all these different ways of working, you can welcome them. Thought, oh good, here's a chance to really explore this phenomenon, which has so much power when we're not mindful of it and is so empty when we are. So one little exercise you might do, if it's of interest to you. It's what I call the thought game. So sometime in your sitting, or it could be in the walking, but perhaps easier to do this particular one in the sitting. You might take <clears throat> five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, where all you're doing is sitting and waiting for thoughts to arise. You're not with any other object. You're just sitting back. It's like sitting back in a movie theater watching the screen of the mind. And all you're doing is waiting for the thoughts to appear. And because that's all you're doing, and because you're waiting for them to come, I think you'll find that you actually become aware of them quite quickly. And you'll begin to see many different uh, kinds of thoughts. Some are really loud and clear and very noticeable. And some may be just subtle whispers in the mind. And some may, you know, we're watching the screen and some may be slipping up from behind. You know, you're watching the screen, catching the thought, oh, I'm doing pretty well. You know, so that's like from back here. So we need a 360 degree screen. It might be interesting for you just to do this, you know, occasionally from time to time, because it will refine your ability to become aware of thoughts when they arise. You know, we we just become more familiar with that as an object of meditation, as an object of mindfulness. So mindfulness of thought can also lead us very directly into greater mindfulness of emotions. You know, and emotions, as we all know, are a very complex phenomena. Emotions are a mixture, you know, of certain thoughts and bodily sensations and mental affects. So there's a lot going on when an emotion is present. And there's a wide range in our abilities to recognize emotions. Now, some people are very skilled and they, they really are tuned in to what they're feeling and other people may not have developed that sensitivity and very often may be going through you know our lives in a way we were not attuned to the underlying emotions but they nevertheless are motivating a lot of our actions or even for those people who are very attuned to them to really see You know, what's the relationship to them? Because very often, even when we know what we're feeling, we're caught up in them, we're identified with them, we're drowning in them. So becoming mindful of emotion, which is a very powerful energy, you know, as we all know, and they're strong, we need to learn how to be mindful of them. So one way that I found extremely interesting... In seeing the conditioned nature of emotion, is that very often a thought, we can see how a thought or image triggers the arising of the emotion. You know, we, we may think of someone who has hurt us, and just in having the thought, we may see anger arise. Or we may think of somebody, you know, who we love a lot. And just in the moment of that thought or image, we have very warm and loving feelings. We may think of somebody we're attracted to, you know, and just seeing the image or the thought, maybe there's lust arising in the mind. And if we're paying attention to that trigger point, we can just see so clearly how the emotion is simply conditioned by that particular thought, by that particular image. And what's so interesting is that all of this can be happening while you're here just sitting and walking without any contact with the person at all? I mean, <laughs> isn't it amazing that we can think of someone who's not here and it can trigger a strong emotional reaction? I love seeing that. <laughs> so, in, <laughs> if you notice this at all, you know, if you notice that there are certain trigger, trigger thoughts, and there's a pattern, you know, it happens again and again. I found it very interesting to intentionally and consciously play with it. So, I remember once I was doing uh, some walking practice. This I was not on retreat. I was I was actually walking the loop, and there was some event coming. I think it was an IMS board meeting or something that was coming up. But it was in a time of a lot of conflict, you know. I knew I was just anticipating this, yeah, you know, difficult meeting. And so I would have the thought of the meeting, and as soon as I had the thought, I could feel kind of little anxiety arise so I was watching this oh thought anxiety and then the anxiety went away and so then I just started playing I consciously intentionally brought that thought up again and immediately even though I intentionally did it the anxiety was there <laughs> So shh, shh. <laughs> it became so clear that the emotion was just a conditioned phenomenon conditioned by that particular thought we're able to really see that clearly and in the seeing of it repeatedly it helps to free us from being so identified with or drowning in the emotion so sometimes we don't catch the trigger thought you know, And we find ourselves in the middle of a strong emotion and perhaps not yet mindful of it. So there are other signals that we can use to remind that, oh, something's going on here. There's some strong emotion. I need to, I need to really explore it. So one way is to pay attention to those times when we're just feeling uneasy or we're feeling you know, unhappy in some way, you know, out of sorts, ill at ease, or when there may be a lot of obsessive thoughts that are continuing. All of these are signals. You know, if we're feeling just ill at ease or obsessive thoughts, this is a signal that there's probably some emotion underneath that's not being seen, that's not being acknowledged. Now it might be unacknowledged worry or unacknowledged fear or unacknowledged aversion. And if we don't become mindful of these emotions as they're arising, they then become the unconscious filter through which we're experiencing the world. So it's important that we actually learn how to open become mindful of the presence of these emotions and then begin to explore them. Sometimes we know we're feeling something, but we're not quite sure what it is. You know, but there's a, sense, there's a sense of some kind of struggle going on something that I have found tremendously useful over the years, at those times, I know something's going on, I don't exactly know what, but there's some unease to sit back and simply ask the question, what's happening now? So instead of being caught up in the unease and sense of struggle, the very question, oh, what's happening? I don't know if you can see the move I'm making. That's exactly what happens in the mind. It's like we step back, we take a step back, and there's an opening to see what's actually there. And it's possible at that time that we might even note confusion, right? We're opening to that whole state. We may still not exactly know what it is, but we note confusion. In the moment of noting confusion, we're no longer confused. But the mind has already come to clarity. So it's a question of recognizing. And it's also a question of accepting. You know, because particularly with afflictive emotions, they are unpleasant and so just as we don't like to open to physical pain and it takes a practice to remember it's okay to feel it it's unpleasant and it's okay the same thing with unpleasant emotions the tendency is to push them away because they're unpleasant we don't like to feel them so we need to remind ourselves it's okay to feel this You know, there's fear in the mind, there's worry in the mind, there's anxiety in the mind, it's okay, just let me open to it, let me feel it. This is an extremely important part of our practice. Now in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the third foundation, the first, I can't remember actually whether it's the, the third or fourth foundation, but the first direction In working with the hindrances and different mind states, very simple, the Buddha gives a very simple instruction. He says, if sensual desire or aversion or worry is present, one knows desire or aversion or worry is present. The very first instruction, it's so simple. It arises, one knows this is what has arisen. So one indication of non-acceptance, because we might think we're being accepting of it, but not really. So one signal that we're not actually accepting the emotional mindset that has arisen is if there is some sense of struggle. Do you have times in your practice when? it just feels like there's a, there's a bit of an internal struggle going on. The mind is not at ease with the arising and passing of phenomena. So struggle means only one thing. It means something is arising that we're not accepting, because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. And so instead of seeing struggle as a problem, or instead of just getting caught up in the struggle, take it as feedback. That feeling of struggle is actually telling us something. It's saying something is going on. It may be an unpleasant emotion. It may be an unpleasant physical sensation. It may be the restless mind. If this struggle, it means something is going on in our experience that we are not open to and accepting. So as soon as we recognize and realize that, again, we just settle back. Okay, what's happening? What's actually happening now? So just, there are a million examples of this. But one time I was in Burma, and conditions, this was at the Mahasi Yekta. It was so noisy. My room was right at one edge of the monastery, so right over the wall was like a little village, and the women were doing their laundry by pounding, you know, their clothes on the rocks. And on the other side, in the monastery, they were doing construction and straightening these steel rebars by clanging metal on metal. So <laughs> The laundry on the rocks on one side, this very irritating sound of metal on metal, all day long this was going on. I was an unhappy camper. (laughs) And so I was really caught up in all this aversion, and I was justifying it to myself. You know, how can they be doing this? You know, I came here to get enlightened, and (laughs) they allow this to go on. But at a certain point, I I realized I was in this space of struggle. And so I asked myself the question, "Okay, what's, what's happening in my mind? And I realized it was complaining mind. It's just my mind was complaining. It was amazing. As soon as I just stepped back and, oh, complaining mind. In that very moment of being mindful of it, rather than lost in it or identified with it, it seems to be a problem. In the moment of being mindful of complaining, the mind is no longer complaining. So there's a tremendous power you know, when we take struggle as feedback and then actually move, settle back to see what is going on that we're not accepting. I have to edit this down. OK, sometimes we don't recognize emotions because they may be too painful. You know, there are, there are many very painful emotions that we may, that we may be, experience, be experiencing so just as with physical pain we have to be very gentle with that we have to just open in a gentle way to it you know and be with a little bit just touch it okay can i be with this you know one image i have of the development of practice is each one of us has a comfort zone of experience and everything within that comfort zone, we're OK with. But then in our practice, we get to an edge. And it might be an edge of physical sensation. It might be an emotional edge. And that's where we get, we're not, we're not open to it. So when we find ourselves at the edge, that's actually a good thing. If we can, OK, just can I be with this? Can I relax behind this? And so then our mind opens a little more. We get to another edge. Oh, can I open to this? And so my imagination of the Buddha's mind is a mind without edges. You know, and a mind without edges is a mind without fear. It's open to whatever arises. But it's a gradual process. We can't, and most of us don't jump right to Buddha mind. It's a gradual progression of opening, sometimes we have to actually pull back into our comfort zone. Because sometimes emotions come up and may be triggered by old trauma with very powerful forces at work. And at certain times they may be too overwhelming, too, too much for the mind to hold at that time. So we need to learn to recognize that when the mind is not able to be in balance, the wise approach, okay, let me come back. Then we come to a place of safety, of balance, and then we open again. So there's a lot of sensitivity that's needed as we explore this terrain. Okay, the last piece of working with emotions, which um, is the most liberating you know, recognizing them, opening to them, accepting them is non identification with them. Because emotions in some way are what we most personalize. You know, we can see, perhaps more easily, thoughts come and go, or sensations come and go, sounds come and go. But when there are strong emotions, we so easily take them to be who we are. You know, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, or even more, I'm an angry person. You know, we build a whole superstructure of self on top of the emotion. So it's really important as we learn to open to them and be with them and accept them. To understand their conditioned selfless nature, the I and the mind are extra. So we're with them. And this is another aspect of the investigation Oh, anger is like this. Sadness is like this. Happiness is like this. We become a scientist of our minds, you know, where we're exploring the very nature of these emotions. We begin to see that emotions just like everything else are conditioned by causes. They're not I, they're not mine, they're not self. They're like cloud formations arising and passing in the the clear sky of our minds. So let's just close with one teaching of the Buddha. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya, which just becomes a template for understanding, a template for wisdom. He said, so indeed these states, which could refer to the whole range of emotion, the hindrances, different thoughts. So indeed these states, not having been, come into being. Having been, they vanish. Regarding these states, abide unattracted unrepelled, independent. So this is important unattractive. It's not getting lost in them. It's also not pushing them away. It's just being open. Regarding these states, abide unattracted, unrepelled, independent, non-attached, free, not identified, with a mind free of barriers. So this, this is our practice. And to bring this kind of understanding to the realm of thought and emotion is completely transformative of our lives.